0: Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Well, Don, I. I think we have lots of questions to answer. So let's do this episode where we just answer people's questions.
1: Sounds like a, a great plan. Give everybody a, a break from hearing us talking about one topic at a time. We'll try to cover
0: as many cover as we can bunch. cover. We'll cover yeah, a bunch. We'll just
1: go all over the place, you know.
0: We'll, a, we'll see what happens. So, so we've collected questions. Over the last several episodes, questions that people send to us, um, some questions that we've had in other venues, and we thought, you know, as we see some of the same questions come up over and over again, uh, certainly this audience would likely, well, the two, three, five, ten, how many listeners that aren't related to Don, (laughs) would appreciate maybe hearing the answers too. So, this is our assumption, so hopefully you're interested in hearing the answers to some of these questions. I think there's some tough questions.
1: Yeah, well, there's t- tough enough that it makes us definitely think a well while when we get asked the question live in front of virtually in front of 40, 50, 60
0: people. <laughs> right. right. We're, we're, or I get it in an email. scratching our heads. <laughs> <laughs> I get it in an email and I send it to Don and say, "Or right, we'll save this one for a podcast." So, all right, let's get going here. This one is good. So the the part 18, obviously, or actually it's part one, kind of mentions the need to perform physical chemical testing in order to come out with a risk assessment or evaluation for a device. Or can we do a risk assessment evaluation referring to toxicological data reported previously? So, I mean, I think that that's the question is, is chemistry testing always needed for me to do a risk evaluation? I can think that kind of sums that one up.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and kind of the other concept, can I do a risk evaluation with, well, like you said, do I actually need chemical characterization testing in order to do a risk assessment? And I would say there, from a purist point of view, no, you know, in terms of testing, I guess that's the key thing right? in that is that I can certainly do a preliminary risk assessment, my initial risk assessment that results in my plan of invest- evaluation. And not have any extractables testing because part of my plan might be to go get extractables testing. But does that mean that I always need it? No, it depends on what you have at the beginning. And I think if we want to say it's most clearly stated, because I don't know how true that is, but it's in <laughs> you know, Clause Six in, in Part One that talks about the biological evaluation process, that three-step process. You know, start with physical chemical information. Two, do a gap assessment. And three, biological testing. It's kind of hard to do the gap assessment without at least attempting to collect some information in terms of what you know. And so part of what you know may not be extractables testing when you start off. And when you do your gap assessment, you, you still might say, you know what, I don't need extractables testing. Maybe I need more information about my device in terms of its chemical makeup or, you know, materials and how they've been used, manufacturing processes. That sort of thing, so that might be a gap, but again, depending on what you know what you don't know, what information you have and don't have, should lead you down the path in terms of what testing you may or may not need to do, and that includes extractables as well as biological testing might yeah, that's and, how I and,
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think the, the other thing to remember is the whole thing like the whole process is an evaluation of risk, the whole thing yeah. is a risk assessment, and that doing all of all of the components however you do them whether it's testing or or using research is all supporting your evaluation of risk so yeah, and
1: I, you know sometimes i think about it too from I, for me again i live in my own little world i think sometimes but for me it's uh it, it helps to be a little bit clearer when i think of it that the scope of part one isn't just to evaluate brand new devices i mean if we look at what it's meant to do it's not only for new devices but changes to existing devices or you know situations somewhere in between and so it's like if you think about it from that way you know am i going to do extractables testing based on a change to a device where i have kind of a plethora of information from other sources already available to me and and you know certainly you may come to the conclusion that like no i don't i'm just doing this because I need to know for sure. And the standard says I need to evaluate it after a change without any belief that I'm even going to go into it with an outcome of testing. So, sure. um, yeah, it's just, yeah, I think we get bogged down and still <laughs> in to, at this day and age, we still get bogged down into part one as a recipe for a bunch of tests. Checking boxes.
0: Yeah. I mean, now exactly. it's like, do we check that physical chemical box? Did we check it? Yeah, exactly. Oh, like
1: people ask that, you know, how do I check the box? <laughs> how do you I know? check the box? What testing do I need to check the box with? And it's like,
0: mm-hmm. well,
1: there's a maybe there. There's, there's a
0: maybe. There's... <laughs> but, All right. So this is another one that I think is, is interesting. And in, in the fact that EUMDR has certainly brought in some complexity I think I can say safely say some complexity to the biological evaluation. So they've seen references to the EU MDR for user contact. And how does that align with part one? And really then kind of as a follow up, what does that mean when it comes to user contact and biological safety?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's these, these kind of stipulations within the standard, even in within FDA's guidance to some degree where they both say that, you know, we're looking at items that don't contact the user. I mean, that don't contact the patient, contact the caregiver, but they're not actually protecting the caregiver. They're not a glove, not a face mask. You know, those, I think, are the two classic examples that are in the standard. But I certainly, from what I see, I see the expectation is still there that it goes beyond items for protection, because there's other things in part one that talk about other types of devices, components that aren't items for protection, but that would primarily be contacted by the, uh, you know, somebody other than the patient. And you see that under like the skin contacting uh, note in uh, clause five of part one, when it talks about categorizing and, you know, they talk about skin contact and that sort of thing. And there's things mentioned there that certainly aren't for protection. And and they come up from time to time now for sure. I mean, you have things that are essentially it, well, not essentially, they are cell phones that are, you know, <laughs> right. The iPads. I had one, I mean, literally, I mean, those come up. People say, you know, yeah, we don't modify the iPad in any way, but I'm not going to test the case of an iPad because if somebody holds on to it. And that could be right. user as well as. Caregiver, but then again, you know the the common one I think that comes up at least historically has all always come up as handles of
0: handles. Devices. Yeah, for sure. What do and, I do about the handles?
1: <laughs> yeah, and and again, I I don't think just because the standard because the handles aren't there for protection that you get to ignore the handle. I and and I don't think certainly MDR is not going to let you ha- ignore the handle for safety reasons and for other reasons as well. You know whether it be 10.4.1, GSBR 10.4, that kind of concept because it's part of the overall device that, say, if, you know, if you're talking about a cardiovascular catheter, that that certainly is invasive. So, you know, there's, there's other requirements, MDR specific, that wouldn't let you say, ah, oh, you don't have to worry about that part because it's not protecting anybody. Uh, that's not how I see it working.
0: Right, right. But along those lines you don't want to throw it in with your implant yeah. just to throw it in like <laughs> let's let's not let's not throw it in make one big soup um yeah we certainly don't want to go that direction
1: yep yeah yep. and i and you know as common as that type of stuff seems to be i mean i just this week was working through a situation where there was a change to you know the tip of a device that's an implantable and even in that case i was like okay I don't want to dilute my extracts with the entire device because this change is like
0: just the tip.
1: Just the tip. I mean, yeah. it's a really small change, so you know, it's it's not the same as that, but it's that same type of concept that you know you got to yep. make sure that what you do makes sense for what you're investigating, and 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 make sure. sure that everybody sure. understands it. Understand <laughs> what you're doing. Tell the story.
0: Tell the story. Yeah, tell right?
1: the story. <laughs> Stories. All are
0: right. So next one is a question about clinical data. We get asked a lot about if it's even useful. Part one mentions clinical data, obviously, and that the using supporting clinical data. Uh, but there's been some questions about, say, the clinical data comes from outside the U.S. Is the FDA going to acknowledge that? Is clinical data even useful? So I know it's our favorite answer of it depends, but um, <laughs> maybe we can elaborate on that one.
1: Yeah, I guess a couple of different ways to look at it, and you just kind of talked about them already, is, is the idea that if you have clinical data, even if it's outside the United States, but if you have clinical data and you're doing a, your preliminary risk assessment to evaluate this device and you have that clinical data, again, from a purist point of view. Should you have to include it in your evaluation Mm -hmm. um, that you're doing at that time for whatever reason, in my opinion, because the standard says to take all types of information into consideration. So if you just ignore it, there could be some potentially useful data there telling you something about, you know, a risk that you need to evaluate further at this point. Or it might be information that says, generally speaking, this thing seems to be safe, whatever the thing is, whatever type of device it is. And that's where. It's general information, probably. In some cases, it might be specific. Depends on your situation. And we always preach the why. Why are you looking at the data? How are you going to use the data? What do you expect to get out of it? All of that plays into kind of the other part of that question is, will the FDA even, in terms of biocompatibility, even care? Mm -hmm. And, And I would say they will It's just a matter, if you use that as your primary source of information to omit the need for some test, then that data better speak to the output of that test pretty directly. So just because nobody's died doesn't doesn't mean it's not a
0: sensitizer. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly,
1: exactly. (laughs) But, I mean, could you weave into your overall evaluation rejection rates of an orthopedic implant? outside the united states you know again possibly and it depends on what you're weaving that with you know what other things are you weaving together you know that might be one thing you might have a large animal safety study who knows what else you know common material common manufacturing processes and it's just one more piece of the overall puzzle but down to the nuts and bolts with dealing with fda if you're going to use the data to offset the need for a test it better speak to the endpoint very specifically they do fda you know mentions that in their biocompatibility guidance one example that's in there is um, no need for sc5b9 complement activation testing if you have no signs of anaphylactic shock in your in a clinical study that was performed um something along those lines so I, i mean it's not the best example but again it is yet an example of 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 that type of situation because now you don't have to do one test could you draw some other hemocompatibility endpoints out of that possibly but again it's probably going to be in a more general standpoint than the 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 complement activation uh point that that's mentioned in their in their guidance yeah
0: right okay this is a good one because it's about Our favorite topic, manufacturing process. I don't know if it's favorite. Maybe it's more, less favorite than class six testing. (laughs) (laughs) If people never listen to us, they'll be like, we have no idea what they're talking about. We have these stupid inside jokes that we talked about at some point in an episode. Yes. So when should we stop gathering information um, on contact materials in the, or yeah, contact materials in the manufacturing process, meaning Should we go back all the way to the raw material and look at all the manufacturing or do we stop at the last step of the process? Like when it tells us to analyze manufacturing, are we talking about right when the chicken has hatched the egg (laughs) or do we have to like, how far back do we have to go?
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, I haven't myself seen it go all the way back to you know, trying to understand the chemical formulation of contact materials that are used in the manufacturing process. So, if I have a stainless steel mandrel, you know, I might care that the mandrel is made out of 303 stainless steel or 316 stainless steel, and I think I'm likely going to leave it at at that. Um, you know, and then if the device is made around that mandrel and removed from it. You know, I just, I understand what was there and what wasn't there. It was 303 Mm -hmm. stainless. I didn't apply anything to the stainless or if I did, you know, does the stainless steel get wiped down with IPA in between each device that gets made with the mandrel or something like that. So, you know, I, but going beyond that, you know, I, I just, I, I see that being the place where it starts. And then, but definitely mapping that whole process out so that the reader of the assessment understands that you went to some level of detail to figure it out. So you're looking at the materials that are used in this manufacturing process, any chemicals that are used during that process as well. And and again, it's just information gathering so that you can make informed decisions later on about what else you need to do or not do in terms of, of testing. And if If the outcome of your assessment is that you're going to do chemical characterization testing and you see some of these chemicals that are used in the manufacturing process, then you know that's information you could share with your characterization lab to say, you know what right we don't think they're gonna be there, but when yeah when you do your volatile analysis, we do use these two volatile chemicals during the manufacturing process, so you know yep. again, yep. not saying that you're gonna uh." do a targeted and that's all you look for approach because you don't know what else. Might right. Be there. But right. When you screen, just make sure that your method can see these things generally speaking. And if it's appropriate to shoot them in as, you know, additional standards, you know, if they're not there, so be it. But again, you know, it's allowing you to be a bit more specific in what you're looking for instead of just generally screening it and have irrelevant standards or what seems like irrelevant standards sitting in your test and nothing relevant to um, the actual process. So I, yeah, I I don't know that I would go back to again, you know, the, 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 the mines where all the uh, elements were uh, dug out of the ground in order to make (laughs) something. Right. I definitely would go back to the starting materials again, just so you show your due diligence that you actually, Attempted to collect the information that you're supposed to get in terms of manufacturing and put it in as part of your assessment.
0: Excellent. All right. So while we're kind of talking about extractables and analytical methods and all that, those good things, we get questions all the time related to cohorts of concern and how a laboratory might be set up to handle cohorts of concern. Or how do we address, you know, cohorts of concern? So uh, maybe can you talk about that a little bit when, in, pertin- in relation to chemical characterization?
1: Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, there's a couple different asp- aspects of, you know, the way I see it looking into cohorts of concern. And I think the, the, the place where most people want to start is just eliminating the likelihood of their presence because of what you did upstream when you collected all the information that you could on manufacturing and materials of construction. And this is where people sometimes criticize safety data sheets, those sort of things as not being specific specific enough. But I always like to say, you know, those things, depending on how detailed they are, as well as other certifications that you get with your materials, You know, it it becomes an important thing to know in terms of what's not in your device versus Mm -hmm. what it is. So if you can get some information that says, look, this this is REACH certified, this is who knows what else certified, uh, CLP certified, that sort of thing, and they're basically doing that to state what is not present, then a lot of those hazardous, highly toxic chemicals like the cohorts of concern, would likely not be in your product. Um, And you might be able to even get a statement in some cases. I don't know how common this would be, but you might be able to get a specific statement from a supplier kind of speaking to the likelihood of presence of cohorts of concern. I don't know that Mm -hmm. I've ever seen that done before, but I could imagine some (laughs) larger companies that have enough weight could say, hey, you want us to keep buying... Tons of material from you. Well, this is what we need. But, anyways, yeah. And then just also looking at the categories in ISO 21726 and ISO two one seven two six and ICH guidelines, looking at what they are talking about in terms of the cohorts of concern. And you know, in some cases, they're more more of a risk to be something that's in food than it is in a polymeric device if for no other reason that in some cases they're commonly found or could be commonly found as something that would be present in a pesticide. Well, how's a pesticide going to get into my plastic or into my right, metal, right. that sort of thing. But anyways, you know, so I think it's breaking that down. And and um, I forget what, if it's part one or part 18, that indicates that the process by which one starts investigating cohorts of concern is eliminating their presence based on information gathering rather than testing. And that's where when we get into extractables, you know, you got to remember as well, we're screening for all types of chemicals. And so I wouldn't expect that a company would investigate cohorts of concern as a targeted chemical analysis. If they show up. Yeah. That then obviously it's just like any other (laughs) chemical. You might have to do something. (laughs) You're going to have to investigate that. But but yeah, you know, the hope is that those cohorts of concern aren't going to show up in your screening extractable study. But again, if you're doing three different vehicles, you know, different analytical techniques looking for, you know, inorganics as well as various types of organics, then from a screening perspective, you should get even more confidence that these chemicals are not there. And granted, you could get into that gets a little bit more complex, too, because (laughs) then you're like, okay, yeah, but your AET was set based on a dose based threshold that may not protect or wouldn't be expected to protect against cohorts of concern. And it's like, okay, yeah, understand that. But that's where all of your other supporting information that you gathered helps and comes into play, comes
0: into play. Mm hmm. And it's interesting, you you know, you you mentioned these are this is a screening. <laughs> this is a screening. I think often folks, especially I think folks that maybe come from other industries think that we're looking for targeted chemicals here. Um, but this is really a broad screen of for part 18, the way it's you know, the way the right. chemistry is performed. So you uh I have a follow-up to that that I think you segued into nicely. <laughs> Um, when you're talking about composition, right? So the, the difference between composition and extractables, and yeah. I think that really came into play with the MDR. We never really talked about composition so much until the MDR.
1: Yeah. And that's where it gets, you know, and I, I gotta, I think every time we talk about part 18, that's gotta come up, I, I, I think
0: every time I think every time, yeah.
1: and then <laughs> it comes up again. You know after somebody uh lets it sink in a little bit and then later on in our course we talk about you know uh mdr and somebody's like now wait a second (laughs) but yes i think you know when you talk about biological safety biocompatibility in terms of an extractable point of view you know you're focused on what may come out of your device you know under exaggerated conditions exhaustive conditions Hence, the reason it is what may come out, not what mm-hmm. will come out. But then, composition is a different character. <laughs> it's it's what's there. You know, it's it may not come out, but it's there. And it's there. And and so, when you're talking about MDR, you know, your initial focus in terms of like ten point four point one GSBR is on what's there, either from manufacturing or material of construction, typically both. And and so how much is there? So not just qualitatively, but quantitatively understanding what's, what's present. So they understand the risks, and you can allow those that are exposed to the device to understand what's in the device that they're being exposed to. So that transparency thing comes into play, which is a different, you know, again, a different <laughs> animal than extractables and biological safety it might not be a chemical a hazardous chemical may be there in the composition up front but it doesn't mean that the device isn't safe sure Um, so then you know later on from an mdr perspective you know we 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 talk about and and enforce the fact that extractables in some cases can be the qualifier for what you find in your composition because again you still once you know something's there you still have to prove that your final device is safe Otherwise, that that chemical doesn't come out at levels that are significant, which is based on Part 17 analysis type thing. So I, I think it's it's definitely, I mean, two years ago, this caused even more confusion than it does today. <laughs> but as of, you know, a few weeks ago, the question still comes up. So I think it's right. still fair to talk about it for sure.
0: Absolutely. So... We kind of touched on this. Well, no, we didn't really touch on this. But I think I was thinking we we might get there. Is is you know extractables, especially exhaustive extraction, try to represent worst case scenario. Maybe even like what's your whole life type of exposure. So in part one, I think it is it it addresses evaluation in terms of the whole life cycle of the product. We get lots of questions about how do I address that. In terms how do I address biocompatibility in terms of that clause, like how do I literally address whole life cycle? It's
1: like, come on, the standard gave you one sentence. What else do you? give
0: you one sentence <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, never mind then. We'll just ignore that question. <laughs> Go read the standard <laughs> And now that you're back, <laughs> right, sorry
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely that every time you know I talk about part one, obviously I mentioned. Clause four point seven that has the one sentence. And then questions get asked around that or you know, before that, you know, just emails from customers. You know, there's this whole life cycle thing. What's it mean? Mm -hmm. And, you know, in terms of part one, it's a definition that's not in the standard is what they mean by specifically the life cycle, because it can be a lot of different things when you think about the variety of medical devices that are out there. I think most people though think of it in terms of biological safety related to the shelf life of the device. I make it today. I put a three-year expiration date on it. It sits on the shelf for three years. My biocomp testing was done or my evaluation was done on a fresh device. I didn't wait for three years to do whatever testing I decided to do. So how do I know that that correlates to a safe device three years later? And in some way, shape, or form, based on the fact that That clause is in the the standard now. I think in that perspective, you would have to provide some evidence of how you reach the conclusion that it remains safe. And, I mean, I've seen some regulators ask for biocompatibility testing before and after shelf life.
0: Oh, no, no, no. no. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Especially, yeah. Mm.
1: What I, you know, still, I still see most companies doing their Whatever testing they decided that they needed, they do it on a fresh device, you know, because they need to move and they need to move fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. So they gather that data and, and conceptually, most think of it as being the worst case scenario anyhow, because the likelihood for chemicals to exist, you know, without maybe degrading, getting released if they're volatile or something like that might be on that fresh device. You know, the one that comes right off the line, goes into packaging. And then you send it off into biocompatibility testing fairly Mm -hmm. shortly thereafter. So, you know, I can see the logic there. And then at, at the end of shelf life, you know, especially for sterilized products, you know, the end of shelf life, you know, typically some think about it as being a package integrity type evaluation, make sure that the sterility of the product isn't compromised after it sits on the shelf. But in order to do that, you know, likely you age samples. Both accelerated in real time, and then there's things that you can do after that aging process that would help with biocom. And you know, granted, you're doing all the package integrity stuff, but regarding the device, you know, you can look at the physical performance, functional performance testing that you would do on that device. If there's no changes, if it still falls within the specs, then in a way, that tells you something about biocompatibility because nothing grossly changed that would change its Physical specifications, whatever it is that you established for the product. Likewise, again, you might pull one device out of there or so induce something like cytotoxicity testing mm-hmm. just to confirm that from a screening point in terms of biocompatibility that the device hasn't changed. And of course, there's twenty more complex things that you could do about biocompatibility. You could do extractables before and after aging, and sh- determine if if it's equivalent again if you even think about doing that you know you got to think about how many samples i'm going to have to age just to do that evaluation and you know from a kind of burden of proof point of view do you need all that information all those samples that by that point might be you know getting close to being used on patients rather than scrapped for a test but But again, I think that just speaks to the point that you have to plan for at least addressing that clause in part one so that you have a plan built into your evaluation process.
0: Excellent. I think one more here, and we'll wrap up. It's how come Sherry isn't as funny as Dawn?
1: (laughs) Because Don talks more. That's the only reason. (laughs) (laughs) He's got more uh, opportunities for, uh, you know, comic relief because he gets tired of hearing himself talk, basically. (laughs) Whatever.
0: (laughs) No, I just uh, had to throw that one in there. I was going to make it how come Don isn't as funny as Sherry, but I thought that would be a little bit like, you know, kind of egotistical on my part. So how come Sherry isn't as funny as Don? Anyway. All right. Well, we answered some of those hot questions. You know, we go through a lot of these things in our public training events, whether it's live or, or in person. So if you're you're certainly interested in more training, you can find uh, that information at www2.namsa.com/events. Um, we are for those of you listening to it in present time. We are planning on some live in-person events coming this fall. So that's good. We'll be able to see each other not just behind computer screens. Those of you listening in the future you can look back in your history books and see that in 2020, we had a global pandemic and we couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> if our, if our podcast survives long enough, um, <laughs> that, you yeah, need th- to refer, that people
1: forgot about the pandemic, that they forgot
0: you know. about the worst year in the history of travel ever. Anyway, we, uh, you know, we're excited to hopefully get back to some in-person events. And, uh, you know, we d- definitely have seen the, the value of virtual events and, They'll probably stay in the mix in the future, but definitely want to get back to where we can see folks in person. Sure. All right. Thanks, Don. Thanks for your time.
1: No problem. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Biocom Chatability, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com/resources/podcast.